The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general strike gripped the city in a death-like clutch. While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead, and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. In Minneapolis, a truck driver strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. Hello, and welcome to 1934 Mill City Revolt. I am your host, Kelly Cable. In the last episode, we covered the first days of the May strike. Building from the lessons learned in February, the Teamsters once again tied up the city's trucking with a highly effective strike machine. But after an early Saturday morning victory, the Citizens Alliance pushed harder, concocting a plot to destroy worker morale by trapping a group of pickets and women's auxiliaries in a cul-de-sac in which police and special deputies savagely beat them, breaking some of their legs. The Tribune Alley plot shot a shockwave throughout the city's working class. They would not allow another defeat. But Carl Skoglin, Farrell Dobbs, and other strike leaders had stopped the pickets from launching an immediate response. Instead, as Skoglin had put it, quote, we will prepare for a real battle and will pick our own battleground. That battleground was to be the city market, where they had lost on Saturday morning skirmish, and both sides spent Sunday in preparation. The Citizens' Alliance held continuous day and night meetings, writing statements for the press, purchasing advertisements, and advising desperate employers from around the city. Local 574 and its sympathizers, however, did much more to prepare. So far, most of the city's unions had officially remained on the sidelines, handfuls of delegations providing support, but the 40 injuries in the morning, combined with the vicious ambush the previous night, pulled them in. Quote, five or ten delegations a day of 20 to 30 men from all kinds of unions showed up at headquarters and said, use us, this is our strike. The Clark Woodenware Company, for example, was making wooden saps for the Citizens Alliance and its special deputies, but the carpenters, making them, hijacked the shipments and dropped them off at 1900 Chicago. Local 574 would put these seized means of production to quite the use. Similar to the spontaneous intelligence service Dobbs described in the previous episode, those outside the strike helped where they could. One charming example was an elderly man who showed up at the headquarters to see what the strikers needed. He returned later, pulling a child's wagon full of his own stairway's banister posts, his wife steadying the load. Some strikers, including August Bartholomew, whom I quoted in the last episode about the quality and quantity of food, quote, carried a rubber hose that had lead in each end and filled with sand. That was nice, end quote. Jack Maloney described the temperament of the strikers in this way, quote, In my opinion, the weekend activity at 1900 Chicago was prompted not only in anticipation of what was ahead, but actually by what had occurred. It was not just speculation and leadership counseling that spurred the activity, but actual events, in my way of looking at things. This is a very important factor because, to me at least, and I was very young, 22, the employers were ready and determined to kill, if needed, to maintain their control. I was determined to make them prove it, and so it was with so many men at that time. They knew what to expect on Monday or the next day, and they were ready to go for broke. At Behrman's, the pickets had a sample of what to expect. The cops won that battle, but on Monday, the pickets gave their receipts for Saturday. End quote. The overall organizational point was that the workers had begun the strike unarmed. Thus, they could credibly claim to the public that they had intended to strike peacefully, but that the city government and the police provoked them into arming for self-defense. 
As Dobbs reported, quote, All day Sunday, the strikers equipped themselves for battle. Baseball bats appeared. Garden hoses were cut into short lengths. Lead washers were tamped into the hollow and the ends closed with friction tape to make an improvised tap. Volunteers from the Carpenters Union saw two-by-twos into club lengths, end quote. As the strike turned towards violence and full-scale mobilization, the women's auxiliary took over all functions in the headquarters and planned to peacefully picket in front of newspaper buildings and city hall, independent of the main strike force. Late Sunday night and early Monday morning, the pickets of Local 574 began to assemble their formations. As Skoglund had told the strikers on the evening of the Tribunale plot, the Union was better off when they prepared the battleground and could set the traps. The Union had received a tip that the Citizens' Alliance was going to make another effort to move trucks to the city market again, using the argument that the strikers were preventing the deliveries of perishable foods. While the capitalists claimed some sort of humanitarian motive to break the strike, the real reason was this. Spoiled food makes no money. Throughout the strike, the Union had set up a number of coffee and donut stations, one of them being in the AFL building at 614 First Avenue North on the edge of the Market District. As normal, a full cruising squad would stop by for a break, but this night, only two or three men would leave. Unbeknown to the Citizens' Alliance and the police chief, the Union had concentrated 600 men in the building, at the ready to storm the battlefield. Around 4 in the morning, small standing picket lines blocked access to the market houses. Other pickets meandered about the district in disguise, their buttons concealed. Not only were they disguised, but so were the weapons. Steve Glazer, for example, a short, stocky warehouse man, walked about with a stiff leg, seemingly harmless, but this was not due to a physical injury. He had hidden a club in his pants leg. In addition to the standing pickets, those in disguise, and those hiding in the AFL headquarters, 900 strikers were kept at the headquarters at 1900 Chicago, should they be needed. As the workers assembled, several hundred cops and several hundred deputies also arrived. Dobbs recalled the cops as, quote, on the prod, feeling cocky after their Saturday exploits. Among the deputies was a wealthy playboy garbed in a polo hat. Like the rest of his ilk, he anticipated having a bit of a lark as he went about the business of clubbing down working-class sheep, end quote. The playboy, Dobbs referred to, may have been the Olympian athlete Alfred Lindley. As he cavorted about the street, the growing crowds jeered him, a picket reaching out a club and flicking his hat into the street. A farmer labor council member, Francis Shoemaker, made a fool of himself by brandishing a broom handle and threatening the cops and deputies, payback for Saturday night. He was arrested, missing all of the action. At around 9 a.m., scab trucks with chicken wire covering the windows approached the loading docks of Gamble Robinson at 301 Fifth Street North. As pickets intercepted the deliveries, a cop slugged a striker, to which the strikers rushed the scene and the battle began. With that signal, the AFL headquarters emptied as pickets marched four abreast down the street in an intimidating military-like formation. Dobbs described the scene, quote, Cops and deputies alike were falling amid cheers from among the many bystanders, some of whom pitched in to help the strikers, end quote. Scared out of these wits, these special deputies, the volunteer businessmen, professionals, and frat boys who made up the private army of the bosses, hightailed it, leaving the cops to fend for themselves. Now, the cops were not entirely antagonistic, at least in attitude. One officer interviewed later by historian Philip Korth, Ivor Swanson, said, speaking for himself, quote, My sentiment had to be with the workers because of the wages they were getting. 
That didn't make the procedure right, because they managed to tie up everything, you know. But you were ordered to go in and try and keep order. Regardless of what your inner sympathies would be, you were still sworn to do your duty, and that's what you'd better do. Either that, or you probably would have gotten fired or taken off the job. I don't recall anyone that refused to do their job. End quote. Thus, while some cops may have sympathized, they fulfilled their function. Try to suppress labor for the benefit of capital. A near standoff persisted for several hours as pickets and cops traded jabs. Frustrated with the rocks and debris being lobbed at them, the cops unholstered their firearms, some carrying sawed-off shotguns. With a clear shot at the workers, the police could force them to scatter. But the strike leaders had planned for this scenario and called in the hundreds of reserves from the headquarters garage. They were led by Bob Bell, a huge man and utterly fearless, ordered to ignore all traffic rules and drive straight into the mass of armed cops. His truck, flying a banner saying, Spring the trap and rid the city of rats, barreled into the opposition like a bat out of hell, the cops giving way in a game of chicken. The pickets in the backs of trucks leapt onto the cops. Split up and scattered, the cops could not take a shot without risking hitting another cop, forcing them to holster their arms and take up the clubs once again. The hundreds of strikers, with fresh forces and supportive crowds, now had the advantage. It's surprising that the cop I quoted earlier, Ivor Swanson, could voice any sympathy 30 years later, given how he described his fate in the battle. Quote, I got beat over the head and got knocked out. The one incident that stands out, I had gotten hit several times and had a laceration on my forehead and had blood running down all over my face, and they didn't seem to bother me much. Then somebody from behind clobbered me on the back of the head with an iron pipe. I passed out. I had a goose egg like half a walnut on the back of my head. I was lying in the street, and I can hear and I could think, but I could not move. I thought I should put my hand over my face because somebody's going to step on me. Then all of a sudden I heard, quote, get this man out of here, and somebody reached down and grabbed me by the hand, and the moment somebody moved me, I came to, and they got me on my feet. I was able to stagger off across the street, and they rolled me into the patrol wagon and took me to the hospital, end quote. Another cop, Arthur Hesla, told Philip Korth that, quote, I was standing there watching, and a guy sneaked up behind me and hit me. I never swung my club or anything. I had my uniform on. My ear was full of blood. I used to get dizzy spells. He must have socked me a good one because I didn't even feel it when he hit me. I just went out. End quote. As the police suffered injury after injury, police chief Mike Johannes called it a day, ordering his army to retreat. It was a clear victory for Local 574. No trucks moved. As the strikers fought cops and businessmen in the streets, 700 members of the Women's Auxiliary marched on City Hall. Crowds gathered to watch them pass. Many of them joined. Armed cops, nervous, barred their entry. A small delegation was allowed inside, but Mayor Brainbridge refused to meet. The newspapers printed their demands. Fire the police chief, withdraw all special deputies, and stop interfering with the pickets. At the end of the day, Local 574 sent over 30 cops to the hospital. The crowd cheered as the officers were loaded into ambulances and retreated. The Union's forces suffered some broken bones, but overall left the battle with fewer injuries than Saturday morning. The strangest wound was given to Harold Beale, who was virtually scalped by a glancing blow from a club. He was later stitched up by Dr. McCrimmon and head of the women's auxiliary, Marble Shaw, at the Union's makeshift hospital with whiskey for anesthesia. Police Chief Johannes did not consider the war yet over. In the afternoon, he placed all city cops on 24-hour duty, who patrolled the streets searching for isolated struckers, bandages giving them away, and jailing them. 
Harry DeBoer later praised the strike leader's tactics that day. Quote, I've got to give credit to the revolutionists, the Duns, warning the workers what to expect, that the police were not our friends. The police tried to leave the impression, well, we're working, we've got to do this, and we're your friends. But they'll hit you over the head if you turn your back. So the workers were warned what to expect, which helped win the battle for us. After all, the police represented the bosses. End quote. Minneapolis's other remaining unions, especially the 35,000-member strong building trades unions, declared sympathy strikes in response to the mobilization of businesses and cops against the Teamsters. Sympathy strikes being when a union which has no direct grievance against their own employer, but declares a strike to support another union on strike. In this case, the last remaining bastion of unionism in Minneapolis, the building trades, threw their forces into the ring, rank-and-file members pressuring their own bureaucracies to officially call for strikes. Inspired by their own set of Trotskyists and members of the Communist League, Oscar Coover Sr. and Chester Johnson, these unions included the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 292, the Bridge Structural and Ornamental Iron Workers Local 19, now Local 512, the Roofers and Asbestos Workers Union, and, as we've already seen, the Carpenters Union. These building trades unions voted to strike beginning May 24th, Thursday. Following the battle, the Labor Board tried to reconcile through 14 hours of meetings until 3 a.m. The chair, Neil Cronin, reported that, quote, no differences over actual terms of an agreement remained, but that the question of a written agreement between the parties continued to hold up settlement, end quote. Cronin speculated that the Citizens Alliance thought a written agreement would eventually lead to a closed shop. Thus, although the federal government continued to negotiate for peace, the union and the bosses prepared for what would become the third battle on a strike that was not yet a week long. The bosses also had the continued support of the city government. An official from the Citizens Alliance later told Charles Walker that, quote, it was a religion to Mike Johannes to keep the streets of Minneapolis open, end quote. Although his own police forces did not necessarily feel the same way on Tuesday. Local 574 and the Citizens Alliance again prepared for battle the following morning, again in the city market. Police patrolled the edges of the market, searching cars for lead pipes and clubs. They arrested 20 men before the battle even began. Because of the explosiveness of the day before, huge crowds, numbering over 20,000, filled the market sidewalks, assembled on rooftops, and watched from behind windows. The crowd heckled the cops and deputies. One elderly woman shouted at the deputies for several hours, encouraging the strikers to attack what she called the special rats, she herself hiding a bat under her coat. Radio stations KSTP and WCCO were on the scene as if it were a football game. Film cameras were even present. In fact, the opening audio clip from every episode in the podcast comes from Universal Studios, filming the strike to show throughout the nation's theaters, where people watch their visual news before the spread of television. Given the short notice, the increasing number of strikers, and huge crowds, 574 regretfully could not form the detailed plans as they had done the day before. They instead had to rely upon the strikers and picket captains' capacities to respond to events in the moment. Most of the city's cops were present along with hundreds of deputies. Hoping to prevent the previous day's fiasco, when the deputies had run away in fright, the special deputies were assembled into contingents, with trained officers placed at the head of each. The Citizens Alliance's forces numbered over 1,500. The combination of the Minneapolis police officers with the Citizens Alliance special deputies had introduced a subtle dynamic. The cops, although they enforced capitalist law and capitalist order, had ties and roots to the working class, and nominally 
kept public safety, and worked for poor wages. One of the strikers, Emil Hansen, for example, had a cop for a brother. The special deputies, however, were volunteers from the bourgeoisie. Their sole purpose was not law, order, or safety, but crushing the working class movement entirely. Thus, when the Teamsters confronted these forces of order, they were especially angry about the deputies. It was against them that they now focused their anger. The union even worked out a tentative agreement with the police that morning. As long as the police did not join the battle, the strikers would fight only with the deputies. Jack Maloney later said of the police, quote, They did not participate. I did not see a uniformed policeman involved that Tuesday morning. Not one. End quote. A business loaded a truck of produce, but was given no chance to move. With both sides anxiously waiting for the tension to break, the sound of glass shattering after a worker threw a crate of tomatoes through a window signaled the beginning of another all-out brawl. As the strikers charged the deputies, the cops hung back, showing their resentment to the businessmen and professionals fleeing on them the day before. The untrained deputies were simply no match for the strikers. Unable to escape quickly due to the surging mass of workers, cops, deputies, and spectators, some deputies ripped off their badges and tried to blend in with the crowd, but with no success. The spectators took their own opportunities to get in a lick. Some of the cops who joined the battle were dealt their share of injuries as well. One of these deputies was Arthur C. Lyman, an attorney for the Citizens Alliance and vice president of the American Ball Engine Company. He, like other members of the CA, served in World War I, was a leader in the Minneapolis Community Fund, the Rotary Club, a member of the Kappa Alpha Fraternity, and a central figure in St. Mark's Church. His philanthropy, however, went only so far. He had been invited to a council meeting of the Episcopal Diocese of Minnesota down in the city of Rochester. Instead, he prioritized violent strike-breaking and chose the deputy's badge. Leading a unit of deputies, Lyman was surrounded by strikers and a, quote, small, sickly-looking man in dirty coveralls struck him on the head, end quote. Slipping, Lyman was beaten unconscious. Picked up by an ambulance, he died shortly thereafter in the hospital from a fractured skull. The other death that day was that of Peter Arith, a petty bourgeois businessman who came to Minneapolis from the countryside as a worker, but eventually set up a marginal coal and wood hauling business. He too died of blood loss from a fractured skull, a few days later than Lyman. As the writer Meridel Lesueur wrote in her notebook as she witnessed these events, the businessmen of the Citizens Alliance, quote, found it was a bloody matter to defend their marketing world, end quote. Like the day before, in less than an hour, the cops and deputies were once again on the run. The strikers dealt injuries to an estimated 50 deputies. But unlike the previous night, in which cops picked up isolated workers, it was now the pickets who mopped up cops and deputies in alleys and bars. Pickets now directed traffic throughout the market district. At the strike headquarters, the pickets drove away all the cops from the vicinity. Strikers brought back to the headquarters a bushel basket full of deputies and cops' badges. As Walker said, quote, Monday's battle was the more interesting and well-ordered as a strictly military engagement between two forces of armed men. Tuesday's battle, though it completed Monday's work and in effect ended the war, except for minor engagements, was tactically speaking both a rout and a riot, end quote. Sheriff John Wall later considered the use of social deputies a mistake. Rather than being a trained and paid force with the alleged purpose of enforcing law and order, the strikers saw the deputies as mere volunteer strikebreakers and scabs. To some degree, it's unclear if the deputies were even aware of how they would be used to violently suppress the strike. 
Walker noted that, quote, a considerable number neither anticipated nor relished their role, end quote. Officer Ira Swanson concluded from the incident that, quote, I don't think the deputies were an asset. In the first place, they had no police training at all, and they were resented so much more by the strikers, they were really a hazard, end quote. Harry DeBoer said, quote, It wasn't very healthy to have them show up with them badges. There were badges all over the place. They wanted to get away from being identified as special deputy, I assure you. They were recognized as the enemy, end quote. Indeed, the Battle of Deputies Run, as this event came to be known, was the last time the streets of Minneapolis would be overrun with a private army hired by big businesses. While the tactic had overwhelmingly succeeded in 1917 against the streetcar workers, Local 574 had pummeled them into submission and fright. From here on out, the Union would deal only with the police and the National Guard. Local President Bill Brown half-joked that, quote, We could have taken over the city after the Battle of Deputies Run. We controlled it. All that would have been necessary to seize power would have been to urge a few thousand strikers to capture the courthouse. That would have done it. The Union might have made me Soviet mayor, huh? And Skoglin over there, Commissar of Police. End quote. After early setbacks, the Saturday morning defeat in the Tribune Alley plot had left the truckers firmly in control of the strike. The extent of the violence and of two strike breakers' deaths startled the city as well as the governor. As I quoted from Jack Maloney, the employers were ready and determined to kill if needed to maintain their control. The Teamsters had demonstrated this to be the case and would do so again. Footage of the battle of deputies run was shown in theaters across the nation. In the next episode, we will follow the next round of negotiations that brought the second Teamster strike of 1934 to a close. This is 1934, Mill City Revolt, and I am your host, Kelly Cable. Thank you for listening.